Hey, good morning again. It is so good to be here, and it's so good to see you all. It's been really a great Lent and Easter season. I think for me it's been one of the most meaningful, and I know several of you have told me the same thing. We really took the time to uh, try to reposition Lent and, and to make it a real time of preparation for the, the new life of Easter. And now we're smack in the middle of another time of preparation that I wanted to talk about this morning. But before I get into that, I got, uh, I got a little blurb um, over the internet that I just got to read you guys. Um, it's about a letter from the post office, of all things. But j- just take a listen. Our 14-year-old dog, Abby, died last month. The day after she passed away, my four-year-old daughter, Meredith, was crying and talking about how much she missed Abby. She asked if we could write a letter to God so that when Abby got to heaven, God would recognize her. And I told her I thought that we could. So she dictated these words. Dear God, will you please take care of my dog? Abby died yesterday and is with you in heaven. I miss her very much. I'm happy that you let me have her as my dog, even though she got sick. I hope you will play with her. She likes to swim and play with balls. I'm sending a picture of her so that when you see her, you will know that she's my dog. I really miss her. Love, Meredith. We put the letter in an envelope and with a picture of Abby, and Meredith addressed it to God slash heaven. <laughs> we put a return address on it. Meredith pasted several stamps on the front of the envelope because she said it would take lots of stamps to get the letter all the way to heaven. That afternoon, she dropped it into the letterbox at the post office. A few days later, she asked if God had gotten the letter yet. I told her that I thought he had. Yesterday, there was a package wrapped in gold paper on our front porch addressed to Meredith in an unfamiliar hand. Meredith opened it, and inside was a book by Mr. Rogers called When a Pet Dies. Taped to the inside front cover was the letter that we had written to God in its opened envelope, and on the opposite page was the picture of Abby and Meredith, and this note, Dear Meredith, Abby arrived safely in heaven. Having the picture was a big help, and I recognized her right away. Abby isn't sick anymore. Her spirit is here with me, just like it says in your heart. Abby loved being your dog. Since we don't need our bodies in heaven, I don't have any pockets to keep your picture in, so I'm sending it back to you in this little book for you to keep and have something to remember Abby by. Thank you for the beautiful letter, and thank your mother for helping you write it and sending it to me. What a wonderful mother you have. I picked her especially for you. I send my blessings every day, and remember that I love you very much. And by the way, I'm easy to find. I am wherever there is love. Love God. We don't know who replied to Meredith, but there is a beautiful soul working in the dead letter department who understands love. Hey, it was on the internet. It's got to be true, right? Now, I don't know if it's true or not, but if it's not true, it should be. And I'm just going to declare that it's true because I want to believe that there's a person in the post office like this. You know, how do you teach someone to do something like this? 
you know, just, just imagine the scene. I mean, you know, the only thing I know about the dead letter office is that one scene in Miracle on 34th Street. Remember that? You know, the, all the children's letters to Santa coming through and just tons of letters all over the place. Imagine you're in some kind of scene like that and this letter comes through God slash heaven. You see that like a burning bush in the desert. You see that. You grab onto it. You open it. And it moves you to such an extent that you actually take action. You take the time. You spend the money. You write the letter. And how do you know those words? The perfect words to say to a four-year-old. How does this happen? You know, this is what touched me so much about this letter. That there are people who get it. Now, I don't know this person. I don't know their, their religious affiliation. I know nothing about them. But you know what? They are in the center of kingdom, as Jesus described it. They see the significant and the insignificant. They are moved by tiny things. And it's not the magnitude of the act. It's the condition of the heart that can see God where you least expect him to be. It reminds me of Brother Lawrence who found God in his kitchen when he was cooking for his abbey. And this person in the dead letter office finds God there in such a shining way that he or she can give this gift that has now given a gift to me and hopefully to all of you. This is what we were talking about last week. Last week we were talking about, okay, here we are post-Easter, post-resurrection. What does it look like as we point toward Pentecost? What does it look like to live a post-Pentecost life? You know, we talk about Pentecost with the, the spirit falling and we, we know that it's an infilling of the Spirit. We talk about it as being born again. We talk about it as baptism of the Spirit. We talk about it as a lot of things. What does life look like after you've been baptized in the Spirit? What does life look like after you've had this infilling of the Spirit? How does it change? What does it look like? And we talked about the fact that, interestingly enough, the Bible takes a look at Israel metaphorically as a single person and follows Israel through its relationship with God as if it were a person. Called out of Egypt. Called out of the death-obsessed culture there. Called out of a land that was dominated by a massive river that allowed them to harness the river and irrigate it, and, and their crops seemed certain year after year because the river flooded and, and gave more silt and soil to and, and reinvigorated the land, and the water was something that they could carry in pots, from the banks, or they could cut channels and irrigate. And they move out to a place like Canaan that has no natural water source, no major rivers. And they can no longer count on the certainty of the river. They have to count on the rains that fall, the early and latter rains, the ones that fall in the fall and the ones that fall in the spring, and you can't control the rains. And so they're forced into a completely different kind of life, a life that is marked by complete dependence on the heavens and the God in the heavens. That is marked by a closeness, a consciousness, an awareness of, of wind and weather and the turning of things and, and the diligent work that they do in the midst of that sense of humility and dependence. Working to do their part so that when the rains fall that they can't control, here comes the crops that will sustain them. A whole different kind of life. Not looking forward to the next life. Not always preparing for the next life, but completely rooted and grounded here and now. And we said, hey, 
What more perfectly beautiful portrait of post-Pentecost life could there possibly be than living in that kind of trust, that kind of connection, that kind of immediacy? Now this week I want to talk about how do we get there? (laughs) How do we get to a post-Pentecost life? I mean, hopefully you're buying what, what that looks like because what it points to is an unassuming God. It points to a servant God. Jesus said, I came to serve and not to be served. He wrapped a towel around himself and washed his disciples' feet. And then he said, I am one with the Father and everything I do, I only do because the Father does it through me. And so here we are looking at a whole different type of God. One that we picture at the top of the pyramid. One that we picture as the God of the heavens. And he's the one who is washing our feet, serving us, exists and takes pleasure in serving us. You know, that's such a difficult turn for us to make. But it's so clearly shouted from the New Testament. And the old, if you read the prophets. So, how are we going to get to a place that looks like that? A place that looks like this kind of... Of life. Well, the Bible also gives us this collective view of not only the nation of Israel, but also the followers of Jesus. And so, taking a look at that, we can kind of start to get a sense of where all this is going. The Jews, as they came out of Egypt and established themselves in Canaan, were absolutely dependent. And so, they're most holy festivals, centered around these agricultural events on a yearly cycle. So Passover, Pesach, that we just went through, that it coincides with our Easter, is set right at the spring rains, the latter rains. So what the Jews do in the fall, the ancient Jews in the fall, I suppose modern Jews now that are still planting, the early rains, called the yore, they come in just the beginning of fall. And they're lighter rains, but what they do is they soften the soil that's been hard-baked through the summer, and they allow it to be able to be turned, and then they can do the planting in the fall, and they plant their grains, which was a staple crop, barley and wheat. And without the rains, they wouldn't be able to do the planting. And then they tend those crops through the winter, and just as it looks like they're about to peter out and lose it, then the spring rains come, and they're harder driving rains. They're called the Malkosh. You can tell when something's important to a people when they create words for them, right? So they got, they got four different words for rain. And the, the yore, the early rains, and the melkosh, the latter rains, are the two most important because their crops depend on those rains. Pesach falls right at the time when the early rains have allowed the barley to ripen. Barley ripens about seven weeks before the wheat does. So in late May, you've got the barley harvest. That's the time of Passover or Pesach. So it's connected to that. It's connected to that, that agricultural necessity. And then seven weeks later, you have Shavuot. And Shavuot is at the time of the wheat harvest, when the wheat ripens. But these festivals aren't just agricultural. They also had deep spiritual meaning. Passover or Pesach was a remembrance of the Jews' liberation from Egypt. Moses leading the people out of Egypt. Shavuot was the reminder of the giving of the law. By the time they got to Sinai and they camped there and Moses went up to the top for 40 days and he brings back the law, the law did tremendous things for the nation of Israel. 
The law gave them a national identity. The law gave them a completely new identity separate from Egypt. After 400 years in Egypt, they had assimilated that culture. They had assimilated that death obsession and obsession with the next life. They had assimilated the way of living life with the river at their side. And what this law did was make it illegal for them to talk to the dead, illegal to embalm a corpse. If they even touched a corpse, they were made ritually unclean. Everything that the law does was to focus them here and now because it recognized that the only place we'll interface with God ever is here and now. So their life was all about here and now. Not that they didn't believe in an afterlife. They did, but that was God's business. So it focused them here and now. Amazing. But if you really take a, a deeper look at what's going on here, and the Jews understand this, Pesach represents the physical liberation from the slavery of Egypt. Shavuot represents the spiritual liberation. For them to be able to graduate out of that type of mindset that they had, to drop those practices that were weighing them down and keeping them from being able to see their God right here and right now, to connect and to commune with him. Moses first the one who talked to God directly. But the prophets understood every single one of them could do the same thing. They could talk to God too. So you have these two festivals side by side, 50 days apart, physical liberation and spiritual liberation. And in between, what you have is the counting of the Omer. Okay, what's the Omer? On the second day of Pesach, on the second day of Passover, let me read uh, Leviticus here. And this is a real red-letter day, because if you know me, how often do I read out of Leviticus? You know, Maybe Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. But here, Leviticus 23, starting at verse 15, you shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you um, brought the sheaf, and that is what Omer means, Omer means sheaf, of the wave offering. There shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the, sab- after the seventh Sabbath, and then you sh- shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. Okay, what is this telling them to do? This is telling them on the second day of, 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 of Pesach, you will bring a sheaf of grain. The people would all bring their grain. And this is barley because it's the early harvest. And they would wave it in all the four cardinal directions to represent the all-encompassing presence of God. And then they would burn the grain, and it was an offering to God. And then on the second day of Shavuot, 50 days later, they would do the same thing with the wheat sheaf, the Omer. And in between, what they were supposed to do was to count seven weeks of seven, seven times seven, or 49 days. And if you know anything about the, the powerful symbolism of Jewish numbers, seven is spiritual completion. You know, you have six physical directions, right? Front, back, side to side, up and down. The seventh direction is spiritual. And so seven represented spiritual perfection. And here you have spiritual perfection times spiritual perfection to get the number of 49. Perfection squared, yeah. And this is not perfection the way we normally think of it. This is completion. This is fulfillment. This is complete connection with God. This is what they're talking about. And so those seven weeks... You know, those 49 days. And the day after, on the 50th day, is when you start the, the festival in, in terms of having the grain offering. And so here we are with all this. 
Here we are with this counting. We are now smack in the middle of the counting. We are in the middle of this period. Okay? So, why count? Why does Leviticus tell the people to count? Why are they still counting every night to this day? And what do they do? Every night the head of the household recites a blessing, recites a prayer, and then they literally say, this is the first day of the counting of the Omer. The Shefirat HaOmer would be the way they would say it. And they recite it every day. And they can't miss a day. If they miss a night and they remember the next day, they can say it. But if they miss a day, then somebody else has to say it because you have to keep it continuous. It's something they take really seriously. Why? Why this counting? What are they trying to accomplish? If you think of the significance of the Shavuot festival, it's the giving of the law, it's this spiritual liberation. The counting of the Omer is their disciplined way. It's the structure that they adhere to, to be able to bring them back to a point of awareness every single day of this period of preparation. The counting of the Omer is a, is a preparation time, just like Lent was a preparation for the new life of Easter. First the shock of Calvary and the loss and the grief of Calvary, and then the realization of the new life immediately after. And now you have this other preparation period for the spiritual liberation that's going to happen at Pentecost. Pentecost is just the Greek word that means 50th. It's the word that the Greeks use to translate Shavuot. Okay? And so here we've got all of this symbolism working for us. But here you have a ritual that's literally 3,000 years old that a people, people are still adhering to. Remember when we were talking about Lent? We said, if you can, get up every morning and give yourself 20 minutes to a half an hour of quiet time. Just clear the decks. Every day, have something that you do that helps you to remember what it is you're doing, what it is you're preparing for, to get all the distractions out of the way. Here, the Jews are doing this every night of the counting to do exactly the same thing, to clear the decks, to remind them, we are preparing, we are purifying our spirits for this liberation, for the giving of this sacred law that redirects us to where God is. It's a beautiful thing. It's a structured thing that they are disciplined to. And that makes it effective. Because anything that we dedicate ourselves to and do day after day builds all sorts of resources that we didn't even know existed. And we don't need to know. Remember the farmer who plants a seed and then goes to sleep and he doesn't know how the thing sprouts? We don't need to know the workings of this thing. All we have to do is show up day after day, and do what we are supposed to do. Simple things that we can do. And all of this stuff is happening. And so there's this deeper call, this deeper call, both to God's provision in terms, as they're thinking, the harvests, and also now this movement from a slave mentality to a a mentality of liberation, from simply a physical movement to now a spiritual movement. All of this is present here in what the Jews are trying to do. Now, the New Testament overlays on top of that structure all of the events of Jesus' Passion Week and even beyond. If you think about it, the followers, if you take them collectively as one, it gives us the shape of our journey in a really beautiful way. I mean, think about it. Their first is the call, right? Jesus calls them. And they have a decision to make. Some answer, some don't. Some don't answer, and then later on they do. But at any rate, when the decision is made to follow Jesus, 
physical change takes place. They are now actually living in relationship with the physical Jesus. They are building a a, a familiarity. They're building a relationship and a connection with him at the physical level. And then there's the shock, the cut of Calvary, where the physical is taken away. And they move into that place of loss. They move into that place of grief. And those that don't run and turn tail, those that stay planted where they are long enough They have this realization that Jesus is still alive. And remember, it was a gradual realization. We talked about that on Easter, how none of the followers of Jesus recognized him the first time that they saw him in risen form. Their eyes weren't yet ready. They weren't prepared yet to be able to see what was right in front of their eyes. That was a process that they had to go through in order to be able to see that God was risen. But then that threw them into this period of adjustment, I guess you could say. They were used to dealing with the physical Jesus. But Jesus told them, it's to your advantage that I go, because when I go, then the helper will come. Now they had to be able to relate to Jesus on a spiritual basis, pure spirit. That takes some time. And this is the 49-day, the 50-day period of adjusting to relating to God in a deeper level. And then the breakthrough happens at Pentecost, the breakthrough into the kind of boldness of spirit and the kind of power that they never had before, that they never knew before, because they had taken this preparation, this path. If you think about that shape to the journey, Doesn't it correspond to what many of you have gone through? I mean, it it fits my journey to the absolute T. I know that when I was called as a kid in the Catholic Church, I answered for a while and then I let go. And then I was called again through difficult times when my life was spinning out of control in my early 30s. And I answered that call eventually and ended up in an evangelical church. And it felt like home. Totally different than the Catholic Church, but it felt like home. And I just wanted to be on the inside looking out. And so I landed there, and I was so grateful just to be in relationship. But cut after cut after cut started to happen until that relationship was also broken in a way that I had to decide, am I still a Christian? Am I still a follower of Jesus? Where did all of that go that I thought I had? And I know so many of you, the reason that you're here is because you've gone through similar journeys at your churches. Churches, maybe you were at 5, 10, 15, 20 years because you've told me your stories. But something happened. Maybe it was just that divine dissatisfaction, a pull in another direction. Maybe it was something that happened that really was traumatic. Maybe it was just life circumstances and you realized the faith that you had wasn't enough to be able to carry you through that difficulty. At any rate, you had your Calvary moment, just like I had my Calvary moment, where everything I thought I had was taken away. And then what do you do then? Some of us become really jaded, really bitter, really angry, and we turn our back on everything. But others, they stay and they say, how do we process this? What do we do with this? And when you do that, you will find out, yes, Jesus still lives. Yes, God still lives. Yes, I can separate whatever happened over here physically from God's spirit and God's presence, and I can continue on, but it's not going to be the same anymore, is it? Now I'm going to need to deal with God on a purely spiritual basis, internally. It's not out here anymore, in the group, in the institution, in the material 
trappings of religion. Now it's something that is interior to me. That's a fundamental change. And then to keep on that path, to keep moving in that direction, is I believe what takes us to where we want to go, takes us to this post-Pentecost way of living life. This is exactly the way it is for me. I hope you're moving through and thinking, okay, I see the shape of that journey. I see how it works in my life as well. Is there anything in the Bible that can help us put a little bit more of a finer point on this thing? I think there is. Take a look at John 3, starting right at verse 1. This is the famous conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a leader of the Jewish community. But he's also getting to that place where he knows that something is wrong. He knows that something is missing. And he's attracted to Jesus because he senses there's something deeper there that he needs. So there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night. (laughs) So he's not yet ready to declare anything. In fact, he doesn't want even anyone to know that he's going to go talk to Jesus. That would be really difficult for him in his position. Jesus was, was, was not a welcome force to the religious authorities. So he sneaks in by night. You can just imagine him under his cloak. And he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answers, and says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is a really telling statement if you think about it. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, the kingdom of God is not a place. The kingdom of God is not a destination out there that, that self-exists. The kingdom of God is a quality of life that we can only have, that we can only see when we have been born again, when we have had this infilling of spirit, when we turn that corner and life looks completely different and we can see what Jesus is talking about. It's so important that we see that because the kingdom of heaven is not the heaven of the next life. It's right here and right now, just like the Jews were pointed to got to be right here and right now. It's the only moment that ever exists for us. And so Jesus answers and says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says back to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Still living on the physical plane, right? Not yet dealing with the spiritual. Can't even deal with the metaphor. He's taking everything literally. And Jesus answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The two liberations we're talking about, first the physical, then the spiritual. Jesus is talking about the movement through those. Nicodemus is only halfway through. He senses there's something missing, but not yet ready to go there yet, right? Don't be amazed that I said to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. There is that quality to those who live by the Spirit. We're not so relegated, are we? We're not just about following rules. We're open to 
massive changes in life. We welcome changes in life. It's a whole different quality to living life when you're living by spirit. It's freer. There's less stress and worry. We don't cling on with a death grip to the outcomes that we have set for ourselves. We're able to let life move, to react to different changes on the ground, and let that be okay. Realizing that it's not the outcome that is significant, it's our passage along the way that is significant. Whole change. And Nicodemus says back to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answers and says to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Ouch. Could you imagine what that, what, how that would have impacted this member of the Sanhedrin? You're the teacher of Israel. You don't get this. This is so basic. Come on. The prophets have been talking about this for a thousand years in our tradition. And you don't get this? It's hard to get. I don't blame Nicodemus a bit. And neither did Jesus. He's trying to wake him up. Come on, buddy. Truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. Isn't it interesting that that's a plural pronoun? We speak of what we know. He's talking about him and his followers. We speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen. And you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how in the world will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So here we are. The leader of the physical community of Israel doesn't understand the most basic things of spirit, but he's drawn to them, to his credit. He goes and seeks Jesus, even if he has to do it secretly, because he knows there's something there, something he can't quite grasp, but something is there. There's something about this spiritual liberation that has eluded him so far, and Jesus is trying to point to it. And so at this point, at least, Nicodemus begins his counting. At this point, Nicodemus enters into the seven times seven time of counting the Omer. And does he break through? Yeah, he does. How do we know? Take a look at John 19, starting at verse 38. This is right after the crucifixion. After these things, after what things? After the things at Golgotha, after the things at Calvary, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. And Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. Are you kidding me? That's the amount of, of uh, embalming, not embalming, but the amount of anointing materials that you would bring for a king, for royalty. That is a huge amount. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Here is Nicodemus coming out. Whatever happened in those intervening pages where he is not mentioned between John 3 and John 19, Nicodemus went through his counting period. He went through his period of adjustment and he started to understand the things of the Spirit that he didn't get before. And it gave him the boldness, it gave him the ability, the courage to just go out 
and declare publicly, I support this Jesus. Think about it. There was nothing in it for him at that point. Jesus was dead. He didn't know that he was going to rise. The chance of him being able to ride Jesus' coattails into a new physical and political kingdom was nil. All he had was downside to declare his allegiance to Jesus in terms of his leadership and even in terms of his life at that point. He and Joseph do an amazing thing here, but he and Joseph had gone through their counting period and they had found something that they had never had before. He began began living as if certain things were true and then found out that they were. He didn't know that going in. He had to start living first as if things were true in order to find out if they actually were. That is the key piece. Without which this movement that Jesus is talking about does not take place. If we think that we can sit on the couch and pray our way into the kind of certainty that we need before we take the first step, then of course, we're couch potatoes for the rest of our lives. At some point, you step out as if something is true. That's what faith is. Faith is not the acquisition of certainty. Faith is the ability to step out because you trust enough that something good is going to happen. Nicodemus did that. Joseph did that. Many of you are doing that right now. You're here, aren't you? That's great. So how do we get from here to there? How do we get to this post? Well, the physical liberation of Pesach, the entrance into community, is really the first step. Being a part of a tribe, entering a community. We can't do this on our own. There's an old saying from the early Christian church that one Christian is no Christian at all. It was understood that salvation doesn't come individually. Salvation is always part of the group. That was from the earliest times of our church's tradition. To enter into the community, to enter into the tribe, whether it's 12-step programs, tribe, whether it's church tribes, we enter into a tribe. We get the sense that there is something greater than ourselves that we need and we want and we're willing to submit to and give ourselves to, even to the point of our entire lives, because we value this. To start living as if something is true, to move into that community, that tribe begins the process, but at some point the emotional lift that you get is going to wear off, isn't it? In anything that we do physically, it rises and falls. It has a life cycle of its own. And when that emotional lift falls, when the pink cloud erodes, if you want to use that terminology, or when some trauma hits you, a death, a huge loss, something that you can't even process, or maybe you, you're victim at the hands of the, of the group itself, some form of abuse, some form of insult, offense that is so egregious that you have your Calvary moment and that connection is broken. What do you do then? If you remain, if you keep moving forward, you realize God is still there. Nothing has changed. You just got mugged and you're going to have to deal with it. And if you will, if you will move through that period of adjustment, something starts to change. Something moves in a new direction. We learn how to walk in relationship, interdependence. We learn how to 
live in, humil- in humility as a servant dedicated to that greater purpose. In other words, we learn to live under the reins, right? That was the characteristic of the people of Israel in Canaan living under those reins, the early reins and the latter reins that they couldn't control. They prayed fervently for. They prayed for God's provision. And then they were grateful people, celebratory people, when the rains came and the crops harvested. To live like that, close to the ground, grateful, connected, interdependent, aware of all of these attitudes and these attributes to life. That's what we live as if when we move through this kind of readjustment. And if you do that for your seven weeks of seven, you do that for your symbolic time of shedding your blindness to the awareness, you become aligned with God's values. What God loves, you love. What God takes pleasure in, you take pleasure in. You find out that you're not following rules anymore. You're doing what you want to do. Augustine said, love God and do as you please, right? Recipe for disaster? Not if you do the first part. If you love God, and what does love really mean here? Identification with the beloved. When you begin to feel one with the beloved, connected with them, and this beloved is God, then God's values become your values. God's pleasure and delight becomes your pleasure and delight. And you find yourself just flowing with the attributes of the law, with the attributes of the servant leader, all these things that Jesus is trying to get across. And the most important thing is you are experiencing the nature of God's love. You're experiencing the nature of God's person. And the only way that that happens, you know our catchphrase here, we love because God loved us first? You know why that is so central and so important to me? and I hope to all of us. Think about it this way. How do you know that you own something, you possess something absolutely free and clear? It's really yours. Say it's a car. How do you know that car is yours? When you can give it away with no strings attached, absolutely just give it, hand over the title, it's yours. The bank doesn't own it. Somebody else is not on the title. It's yours. You can give it away. Anything that is really yours, the only way you know it's yours is when you give it away with no strings attached. When we feel the kind of love that Jesus is talking about, leave us to someone undeserving, to someone who doesn't get it, to that enemy that Jesus talks about, the one that we just don't understand. When we feel that love leaving us, then we understand how we are loved because God loved us first. To participate in that process, to live this way, to start to love this way, to just have it pour out of you is all the validation and the conviction you will ever need to know how you are loved by God. And when that starts to kick in, what other infilling of the Spirit are we talking about here? You know, when I was new in the evangelical church, it was kind of a charismatic church, and they wanted everybody baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so they came up and they asked me, are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? I said, I don't know what that is, but I don't know. 
oh, we, brother, we've got to pray for you then. And so they'd literally sit me down in a chair and they would all hover over me and lay hands on and they were praying in tongues for the baptism of the Spirit to fall me. And I'm sitting there sweating bullets because I'm not feeling anything and I don't want to disappoint anybody and I really want to be in with the crowd, but, you know, do you feel anything? Well, maybe. I, I think so. Uh, what am I supposed to feel? It was so frustrating. And, and every time that I got prayed for and nothing happened, you know, there was that sense of deflation and disappointment and then sense of, of guilt on my part. And it's like, well, what's wrong with me? You know, look at them. They're all speaking in tongues. They're doing this and that. I can't do anything. I was being taught and I thought that this infilling of the Spirit was just an event that could be prayed for, that somehow could be passively bestowed to me before I was ready to accept it? Does anything ever work that way in life? Most things in life that are worthwhile can't be transferred. You have to spend the experiential time before you are able to accept them. This infilling of the Spirit is not bestowed from outside. Jesus told us everything the Father has is already here. It's already within you. What we have to do is live as if long enough, counting our Omer long enough, that everything that separates us from the ability to see that God's Spirit is already present falls away. And that's what had to happen with me. I didn't become born again the way they probably would have recognized it. But I became born again. And I know what that means. I know what that infilling of the Spirit means to me and how it has changed my life, my ability to relate, not only to God, but to everybody that I meet. I know that. And stone not yet smooth? Of course not. There's still more layers to go. But enough, 51%, you know, that I'm now characterized in a different way than I was before. And that is what Jesus is pointing to. That is what the scriptures are pointing to, that we can go through this period of counting the Omer. We can go through the seven weeks of seven, period, however long it takes. And it can take a It took me a lot longer than seven weeks of seven, I'll tell you that. But we can go through this and we can end up, after years of learning to live under the reins, living as if that were true, we start to realize that our values have changed profoundly, substantively, The way that we look at each other has changed. The nature of our relationships have changed. We are reborn. We're seeing life with new eyes. And we're trusting in ways that we never really thought possible. And it allows us to deal with the difficult circumstances in life in a completely different way. It doesn't change our circumstances, but it allows us to deal with them even when they hurt to the core. We know There is a foundation underneath us. There is a path that we can walk and God never leaves or forsakes. We know that. We know that we know the conviction is there. The way to Pentecost, ironically, begins at Calvary. The way to the spiritual liberation is always preceded by the descent, by the sense of loss, by the grief that forces us to let go of everything that we've been clinging to physically, materially, mentally, and enter into a new phase where we need to deal with pure spirit as pure spirit. Calvary always precedes Pentecost. In our lives, 
in the lives of the followers of Jesus. It breaks down that physical barrier and it allows us to live under the reins, the reins, the early reins and the latter reins, as Israel was supposed to. Counting the Omer, we will become this newborn. And ultimately, we will become someone who will know exactly how to love that four-year-old girl who lost her dog. We will have the words, we will have the motive, we will have the opportunity, and nothing will keep us from expressing that love of God in the most perfect way. Let's pray. Father, I think you are the kind of God that was expressed in that letter. You have that kind of love. You have that kind of intimate compassion for each one of us. If we could get a letter from you like that, it would read much the same. Help us to realize that we're not going to get a physical letter. We're going to get a spiritual one from you every moment of every day if we're willing to listen, if we're willing to go through this process of stripping away everything that keeps us from you. Thank you for all these vivid illustrations of what it looks like to live in your presence, in awareness of your spirit. Help us to do what is necessary in each of our lives. Help us to be honest with ourselves and identify what it is that we need to turn down, step aside from, strip away, so that nothing, nothing stands between us and you because nothing stands between you and us. And that's what we need to know. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for your constancy and your provision. Thank you for never leaving or forsaking us. And thank you for always being there and letting us know that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. All right. Let's all stand.